This morning we're going to be in James chapter 1. If you'll turn there, we'll start in verse 17. And I've titled this message this morning, Doers of the Word, as you'll see when we get into it. But if you start out in verse 17, let's, let's pray first. Lord, we thank you for this time together this morning. Lord, we thank you that, that we can come together, that you've called us to come together in a time of fellowship, Lord, to encourage one another, Lord, to seek you in the relationships we have with one another, Lord, to grow in the relationship that we have with you, that we may look more like your son, Lord, that we may be a, a model to the world around us that doesn't know you, that in us they may find you. Lord, we just lift up this service this morning, that, Lord, everything we do and say may glorify you, that, Lord, everything that, that we receive this morning, Lord, we have hope and heart, open hearts and open minds, Lord, to receive it, that you would speak to us today and draw us closer to you through your word, through this time together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So James 1, verse 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Now, the word light here is the Greek word phos. And one of the definitions of phos is of truth and its knowledge, together with the spiritual purity associated with it. So if we we paraphrase that along with the definition, we would say that all perfect gifts come from the Father of truth and its knowledge, together with the spiritual purity associated with it. So what that's telling us is every good gift that we get isn't just a random gift. All those gifts come from the one who is able to give that true and perfect gift. It's pure. What God gives us is pure. We don't need to question it or wonder about it. If God's given it to us, we can take it as something pure. That's all he can give to us. He only knows how to give us good and perfect gifts. You know, he's not going to give us something that's going to hurt us. He's not going to give us something that's going to lead us astray. And there's no wavering or questioning with God. God's always the same, always has been, always will be. He doesn't have good days and bad days. He doesn't disappoint, as we can disappoint one another from time to time. And we, we find it hard to always be what each other needs to be. We, we find it hard to always find the right words, the right encouragement, or to be there always when needed. But God's not that way. God is always there when we need him if we're willing to look for him. He always knows what to put into our hearts, the words to, to show us through his word when we seek him. God is always able to provide just what we need, just when we need it in the circumstances we find ourselves in. Verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now understand that it's not an accident that we're here. We're not orphans that were dropped off at God's door. God put a lot of thought, effort, and preparation into creating us. Now the Bible tells us in Genesis 1 that he spent six days preparing and only on the sixth day did he create us on day one formed day and night on day two god created the firmament the heaven the land and the water on day three created the grass all the herb of the earth it says and the fruit trees on day four he created the sun the moon he placed the stars in the heavens on day five he created the birds the fish the cattle the creeping thing the beasts you may think a few of those either may I wish he'd have left out and we'll get to the creeping things but they're all there they're good they're from God day six he created man then on day seven he rested you see God created everything in that perfect order nothing before it's time everything was there when it was created everything it needed to survive was already in place 
See, as I read Genesis 1, it reminds me of a, a family preparing for a newborn child. They're, they're working to get everything just right, the room, the crib, um, all the diapers, all the things that they're going to need. They're trying to gather all those together so everything's just perfect for that day when they bring that child home for the first time. And, and that joy in the parents as they're able to bring that child home from the hospital and have it in their own home for that day to begin taking care of it to see what, what's going to be produced and how that child's going to be raised up. God views us in the same way, put a lot of preparation, a lot of effort into creating this world for us. We're not an afterthought. In his own will, God brought us forth through his word of truth. That's what James tells us. But see, now we live in a fallen world. You know, through man, we, we find ourselves living in sin. It's, it's not as perfect as God once created it. Through our sin, we corrupted this earth. Romans 5, 12 tells us, Through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin. And thus death spread to all men because all sin. And as a result, we find ourselves living in sin now. We sometimes have difficulty you know, distinguishing between what is of God and what is of this world. But it's an effort that we have to put forth. But God, James tells us here that God is making us a kind of first fruits. God has already begun to redeem us out of this world. He's provided for our salvation once we accept it, once we receive what he did for us. As we look ahead to Revelation, you know, we've studied that already in here with Pastor Greg, we see that the world itself will be redeemed in the end. But at this point in time, we are the first fruits of God's creation. He's already began redeeming us. He's made that opportunity available to us. So we are that first fruits of his creatures. The remainder of the world will be done. We should be honored. You know, we need to recognize what God has provided for us above all others. Verse 19, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You know, when we think about being swift to hear, we, we think, you know, we don't turn our ears off. They're always on. We don't, we don't stop hearing. But the question is, what are we hearing? Now, we hear a lot of noise around us. We hear a lot of chatter around us. But is it beneficial? Is that what we need to be hearing? Is that what we need to receive? You know, as I recently got involved in ham radio, I know there's a lot of static on the radio when you listen. And sometimes you have to struggle and strain just to hear what you want to hear. You want to hear the voices, not just the, the background, the static or the white noise that's out there. Because there's nothing in it. There's nothing beneficial in it. What you're, what you're trying to do is tune that radio to pick up the voices that are out there the people on the other side that are trying to communicate through you, with you through all of the interference in between. And that's where we find ourselves with God today. There's a lot of interference in this world. This world wants to scream in our ear, wants to put distractions in front of us to draw our attention. But God wants to speak to us. So when we're told that we need to be swift to hear, we need to, to put an effort into that. We need to be focused on hearing from God. What does he want to say to us? You know, we often find that we frequently want to talk a lot to we, we find those times when we get, uh, you know, going. We, we get moving forward and we get excited about something and we begin just, just talking and talking. You know, sometimes at the end of a conversation, you have to stop and say, did you give the other person a chance to? Was it a conversation? That's the way we can be with God. Keep in mind that our, our prayer time is not just a time for us to tell God what we want. God probably already knows before we begin that time. But our prayer time needs to be a time of listening to. As we talk to God, sit back in quiet. Reflect on his word. Reflect on what he's showing you, what you're seeing in your life. That he wants to speak to you. What are you hearing from him? 
You know, I think a lot of times we look back once we've made a, a decision and we think that wasn't a very good decision. I certainly wish I hadn't done that. Or, or maybe just simply I should have done that differently. And we wonder, why did I do that? And I think oftentimes we can trace that back to the fact that we didn't listen. We may have even asked a question. We may have taken the time to say, God, what do you want me to do here? But then before he could answer, before we gave him time to show us what he wanted us to do through his truths, through his word, we run ahead and go ahead and do something. That something may or may not have been what God desired for us to do. So we need to be swift to hear, quick to hear. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You know, I think there's the suggestion there that when we're not hearing from God and we act on our own, I think we're quick to do things out of wrath, not out of love that God desires. That tends to be our nature. We, we tend to do things out of a, a reflex to other things. Our actions tend to be a reflex to something somebody else has done or a situation we find ourselves in. And, and often we find that those reflexes are not done out of love. That's probably the primary trait that we see in God is love, love and mercy for others. And taking that time to, to hear from him is how we can ensure that our acts are done out of love and not created out of wrath. In verse 21, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. See, as I said before, it's easy to get caught up in the flow of the world. Often we can find ourselves looking more like the world than we do looking like Christ if we take the time to examine ourselves. The problem is, if we don't put aside the filthiness, the wickedness, the, all the joys of this world that is taunting to us, that it says are the way we should live, the things that we should have, if we're, if we're so busy playing with those, we can't hear from God. We're focused on, on the things of this world. We're not focused on the things of God. See, I think to all the times that we've had to tell our, our children, our grandchildren, you know, put those toys down. I'm trying to talk to you. Look at me. I mean, I've seen parents in here do it. It's a reminder. You know, I've seen some of the parents in here with young children say, okay, I'm talking to you. Put that down. Look at me. You know, why do we have to do that? Because our children are too busy with other distractions. They're not listening to what we have to say. But sometimes we, we fail to recognize that we do the same thing with our father. He wants to speak to us, but we're so busy. We're so caught up in the things of this world that we're not paying attention to him. We've put other things above him, even unintentionally. We've put other things above him in this world. And it says, receive God's instruction with meekness, with meekness. Power under control, that word meekness. You know, God's word is powerful. The truth in God's word is incredibly powerful. You know, he taught us that he brought us forth through the truth of his word. He tells us here that receive that with meekness and receive the implanted word with meekness, which is able to save your souls. It's that powerful. That the, the power is in God's word. The secret is there for the salvation of our souls. If we're willing to accept it and receive it, all that instruction is there. We should, we should have a desire to receive God's word. We should have a desire to have it implanted into our hearts. Have it just ingrained in a place where it can't be taken away and hang on to it. You know, we should view it as a jewel. That Once we get it, we protect it. We put it in a protected place where nobody else can get to it. With it, you have the power to be the light to the world, that city on a hill that he calls us to be. With it, we have the power to overcome temptation and sin. You know, if you're struggling with an issue, if there's any struggle in your life, and we all have them, there's different things out there that, that we each battle, turn to God's word for truth. There's where the power lies. 
It's not a secret of where it's at. It's in there. Seek it out. As we said, God wants you to have those good gifts. He wants you. He wants to speak to you. He wants to implant them into your heart that you can use them. In verse 22, James says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Man he was. See, I relate this again back to our kids. How many times have we told our kids to do something, and they say, okay, but they never get up and move. They're sitting on the sofa playing a video game, or they're, they're sitting in a chair with their, their phone texting or playing a game, and you need to go clean your room now. Okay. But you stand there watching, they never move. How many times have we done that? How many times has God told us, I want you to go do this? Okay, yeah, that's great. But we never get up and go do it. How many times do we sit through a service and we hear something that just really speaks to us? And you go, okay, God, I hear you. That was for me. I understand that. We can even go to the pastor after service and say, that really spoke to me. I I heard from God today. Praise God. Then we walk out of here and what happens? We're back in the world again with all those distractions. We We never become doers of the word that God's given us. Romans 2.13 says, For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. We need to put all this that God's put into our heart, we need to let it come out in actions. Appropriately enough, as we just celebrated 4th of July weekend, about 11 years after our country was founded, after our July 4th, on June the 28th, 1787, the Constitutional Convention was going on in Philadelphia. See, after about 11 years, the Articles of Confederation that had been written to guide our nation, they found weren't working well. They were full of flaws. So a group of men came together to form what we now call our Constitution. But the problem was they couldn't come to an agreement after five weeks of meeting. They were at a complete impasse. Nothing they could do you know, seemed to see them get them past it. There were so many differences. They were unsurmountable. Benjamin Franklin asked to address the group. And this was his statement to the group. He said, In this situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of lights to illuminate our understandings? In the beginning of the contest with Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayers in this room for the divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. And have we now forgotten that powerful friend? Or do we imagine we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, it is probable that an empire can rise without his aid. We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this. I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. And we ourselves shall become a reproach and a byword down to future ages. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers employing the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. You see, Benjamin Franklin remembered that, that only a few years sooner as they fought Great Britain for our independence, that they did seek God's wisdom and counsel. 
And there's a great deal of records of stories that are told by George Washington and others of how God protected them, provided for them to defeat what was then the greatest army in the world with only a group of ragtag farmers, basically, and merchants from the United States, just a group of loosely organized colonies. But you see, they, they had stopped doing what they'd seen before. Once they won that battle, I suspect they'd become a little bit arrogant. So we've beat Britain. We've beat Britain. We're great. We can handle this. They fell back to the distractions of the world once the perceived enemy was no longer there. As a result, the convention adjourned for three days. During that time, they gathered at the Calvinist Reformed Church in Philadelphia where the Reverend William Rogers prayed a special prayer over the Constitutional Convention. And according to George Washington, they also heard an oration on the anniversary of independence. You see, they, they read the word. They knew the word. You can hear it throughout his speech, how many references he makes of biblical scripture there. They ref- recognized that everything they was doing was in vain because they weren't exercising what they already knew to do. They knew to invite God into it. They knew to seek God's guidance and everything that they did, but they weren't doing it. They took the time to seek God. It took three days, three days off. They weren't going to accomplish anything else, right? I mean, it's almost like a last-ditch effort. We're at an impasse. We can't do anything else. But they took the time to gather to prayer. Following those three days, within 10 weeks, they'd finished the U.S. Constitution, under which America has become the longest ongoing constitutional republic in the world. So five weeks at a complete impasse. Understand, our Constitution was written in 10 weeks after they invited God into that convention, after they took the time to begin making him a part of their daily activities. They each morning invited God into that convention, asked him to direct their works, their thoughts, and the work that they were producing. And many of the fathers that were there were quick to acknowledge God's help in their endeavors. Alexander Hamilton said, For my own part, I sincerely esteem it a system which without the finger of God never could have been suggested and agreed upon by such a diversity of interest. You see, when we invite God into it, no matter what our differences are, we have a common denominator. The one thing that all Christians have is what? Our salvation in Jesus, our only hope, our only relief from sin that exists. James Madison agreed. He said, It is impossible for the man of pious reflection not to perceive it in the finger of that almighty hand which has been so frequently and signally extended to our relief in the critical stages of the revolution. And Benjamin Franklin Acknowledged, I beg I may not be understood to infer that our general convention was divinely inspired when it formed the new federal constitution. Yet I can hardly conceive a transaction of such momentous importance to the welfare of millions now existing and to exist in the posterity of a great nation should be suffered to pass without being in some influence, some degree influenced, guided, and governed by that omnipotent, omnipresent, and beneficent ruler in whom all inferior spirits live and move and have their being. And I quote quote there out of Acts chapter 17. So they recognized once they got through it. You know, as I said before, how many times do we get into the middle of something or look back on something and realize that we forgot the most crucial step? We forgot to make God a part of our endeavors. Forgot to make God the, the first part of it, begin with him. You know, sometimes we need to examine ourselves in the mirror of God's truth. We need to ask ourselves, how do we measure up? How well are we doing at carrying out what he's given us? You know, we can see that after just three days of seeking the Lord, everything turned around for this group of men. God God can turn great things around when we allow him to. 
Incredible things happen when we invite God into our efforts. He wants to be involved in our efforts. As we read in verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is, above, is from above, and it comes down from the Father of lights. If it's worth having, if it has an, an eternal impact, then it's going to come from God. We don't want to spend time studying God's Word just to walk away satisfied and patting ourselves on the back that we studied His Word. See, we need to go away on a mission. We need to go away on a mission that we become more like Christ in some area of our life. When we hear from God, we need to apply that to our lives, that our actions would change. Verse 25 says, But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. We'll be blessed. We saw the differences that it made in the writers of our Constitution. You know, our nation has been blessed as a result of that. While we have our flaws, we're still run by men. There's plenty of flaws out there. We can acknowledge those quickly. But still understand, we're the longest-running constitutional republic in the history of the world. So how do we apply this to our own lives? How does this matter to us? You know, we spend time studying, praying, men's and women's Bible studies, the home fellowships, listening to devotions, podcasts that I do a lot. How do we apply this to our lives? You know, we've taken the time to learn God's Word. We've etched His law into our hearts. Some, some of us can say, you know, times we feel pretty good. I understand it. I know what God wants. I hear Scripture and I recognize it. You know, Christ has taught us how to love the sinners, demonstrated that to us. We've read Paul's correction of all the false doctrine that circulated in the world. Notice that many of Paul's letters were written to correct, make corrective action within the church. David taught us to stand against the giants that blaspheme God. Take on the, those that can't be conquered. Take on the giants that are out there, the things that we don't see how we can conquer on our own. Peter, he taught us that when we stumble, you keep getting up over and over again and again. You don't stop. If you make a mistake, get up and try again. God will bless it. And he really got his spiritual feet, you may say, on the day of Pentecost where thousands were saved. Jonah, he taught us the futility in running from God, didn't he? You can run from God all you want, but you're going to find yourself in a bad place. It's not going to turn out well. He's going to get your attention. He's more persistent than we are. So now that we've learned all this, we turn to James. See, James is teaching us here to transform all this learning into an action. All this time that we've spent receiving from God, being implanted into our hearts, all the examples that we've been given. Gaining all this knowledge is the preparation for putting hands and feet to our faith. We are called here to become a doer of the work, as these men did. We only see their actions not because of what was in their heart, but we see these actions because of the, what they did. We see, see them based on the works that they did. To jump ahead to the next chapter of James, in verse 14 James kind of sums this up. He said, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? 
Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works, not by faith only. So we talk a lot about developing our faith. Something I think God spends a lot of time developing our faith, giving us the faith we need to trust in him to not be scared of the encounters that he places before us, the past that we find ourselves on, we're following him. But it's our works that justifies, James tells us, that a man is justified by the works, not by the faith only. So what does faith made perfect by works look like in our lives? How does this apply in our lives today? How do we look for it in our lives? If we want to question ourselves and say, are these works in my life, what are we looking for? There's three areas that I think we can look at these that will pretty much cover most of our lives. The first one will be within our own family, within our own immediate family that God's placed us in. We want to look for these works. The second one is going to be within the church, the body of Christ, the Christians. Where do we see works, our works, others' works within the body of Christ? And the third area that we're going to look at will be within the unbelieving world, this lost, fallen world that we find ourselves in. What influence do we play in, in affecting it? Regarding our family, what should our works look like in a Christian family? 1 Corinthians 11.3 tells us, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Deuteronomy 6, 6-7 says, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. And Proverbs 29, 15 tells us the rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. As we look at these scriptures, we understand that God created the world in all of its splendor. Part of that creation, as we already looked at, was man and woman. And part of the creation was he instructed us to go out and multiply in our own likeness. Hence, we have the family as God's design. Throughout the Bible, as you start looking for words like how to raise your children, how to correct your children, how to be a husband, how to be a wife. You start Googling these and you'll find countless scriptures. Forget about what man wrote. Just the scriptures alone are numerous throughout the Bible. In fact, how to interact with other people is a great portion of our Bible. God gives us instruction on how the family is to function. But see, unfortunately, we often turn to the worldly ways to allow our families to function. It's not what God intended. So as we look to his instruction we compare our operation of the family, then it often doesn't meet God's direction. One author addressed our need for us to rule our families in a way in accordance with God in this way. He said, the family is the core structure of civilization, enough with the broken homes and the parentless children. If you don't have your family, you are living a lie. Yes, we have all made mistakes. We have all made a mess of it. Each one of us stands guilty. God excels at restoration, though. When you have your life straight with God, then get your family right with God. Quit fighting the worldly battles, feminism and freedom. Embrace the roles that God ordained for each of us. Men, get up and and provide for and protect your family. Lead your family in faith. Women, quit fighting your man for supremacy in the home and be his number one cheerleader. Children, stop with the disrespect. Honor your father and mother. Each of us must learn what God intended for us and our positions in the family. 
Each position is equally valuable, but they are not the same. Each must fulfill their role for the machine called a family to function properly and to produce good fruit with harmony, peace, love, and so forth. See, a lot of people want to reject God's design for the family because they don't understand why he set it up that way. But the reality is if we don't follow that plan, as this author stated, we're not going to have harmony, we're not going to have peace, and we're not going to have love. To reject God's plan because we don't understand it is not living in faith. We need to recognize that God created it. He designed it to operate in a certain way. And I like the way that, that this author put it. Each must fulfill their role for the machine called a family to function properly. So within our own families is where we need to start. Are we, are we operating our families the way God intended? Are they structured the way God set them up to operate? 1 Timothy 3.5 says, uh, Paul asks, For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? So what Paul indicates here is to how we operate within our own family will be a pretty good indicator of how we're going to operate within the church. That our, our own immediate family is just a, a micro version, a, a small picture of the entire family of Christ. And don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged if you find difficulties in trying to get your family to operate according to God's plan. Understand we do have a very real enemy out there that, that desires nothing more than to disrupt God's plan on every front. And if he can disrupt our families, even just the smallest version of God's body, then, he, then he's already broken the foundation down for the church. So as you try to rule your family in that way, understand there's going to be opposition. The world's not going to accept it. The world's going to tell you you're wrong. You know, I've, I've read numerous articles this in the last couple of weeks on the family of people that, that disagree with what the Bible says or that try to justify what the Bible says. And it's filled with um, just a lack of understanding, of just ignorance, of just not knowing or understanding God's design. The church, the biblical church is the body of Christ, not a building. We're talking about the people here. See, the church is the, the body of believers that span the entire earth and heaven above. You know, as I've been to Peru a few times, as I've been to the prison on a regular basis in different jails, you know, it's, it's easier to see when you spend time with different fellowships. It's easier to view Christ's body as a larger than just the small group that we refer to as a church or this fellowship. You know, some of you have been to foreign countries. You've participated in missions. You've been involved with other organizations. God Church is, is a, a vast group of people. See, and we all look forward to that marriage supper with earnest expectation that one day we'll become the bride of Christ. We'll fulfill our role. But presently, we find ourselves living in this fallen world that seeks to sway us from our faithfulness in God. So as believers, how do we interact with each other during this time while we're still here on this world? Uh, the Bible gives believers many scriptures. Here's two of them. Hebrews 3.13 says, But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You know, I, I joke about one of my coworkers that his motto is, Why well, do today what you can put off till tomorrow? There's some projects that he's been given that it, it seems like he's not gotten to in months. And uh, some people begin to ask, When's he going to get to it? But that's not, what, that's not of God, is it? God directs us to do today what we, what we could put off till tomorrow. Exhort one another daily. Don't wait. Don't wait. You know, I've received phone calls. I've received texts. I've had face-to-face -face encouragement this morning preparing for today's message. And I appreciate all those. I really do. 
there's nothing more that, that helps me out to prepare and, and to know that God is in this than to know that people are praying for me, uh, lifting me up for this message. The second verse is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. It says, Therefore comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. Comfort the faint-hearted and uphold the weak. Be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. There's a lot of principles just in, in those few verses. First of all, encourage one another on a regular basis, as we saw in the, the previous verse in Hebrews. Comfort each other and edify one another. Second, recognize the spiritual leaders among us. And it's important when we find ourselves in a difficult situation that we know who we can go to for guidance, that we know who we can go to to get a, a biblical word. You know, we, we have to be careful. As we say, we live in a fallen world here. We can't just go to anybody. The world's going to give us false answers. It's going to put us on the wrong path. We need to recognize who the spiritual leaders are among us so that we can go to them in our time of difficulties and know that we're going to hear from God. And at the same time, make a side note of the spiritual deceivers that you see out there. Where do you stay away from? We all have those friends that we know are going to give us that advice. You know, the one when when somebody upsets us that, that tell us just go to their house and beat them. That's not from God. That's not the person you want to go to when you're trying to get wisdom from God. The third principle here, live together peacefully. As I said before, our common belief is in Christ. You know, this world is, is doing a pretty good job at seeking to divide Christians amongst themselves. Seems to find an issue somewhere, sometimes it seems like everywhere, that we can disagree on. That's not what God calls us to do. He calls us to get along. In fact, the Bible tells us as much as it is up to you, get along with everyone. Do everything in your power to get along with others. We're not saying condone sin here, as Pastor Greg recently taught on judging. We discussed that really well. You know, we recognize sin, but there's a lot of things out there we fight about that just don't need to be a difference. Number four, provide caution and counsel to those that are exhibiting worldly behavior. You know, it's a difficult and touchy thing sometimes. We see a brother or a sister that we know knows the Lord, but all of a sudden they're doing things that's not of the Lord can be difficult to approach them you know we don't want to damage the relationship we have with them but we're told here you know warn those who are unruly comfort those that are faint-hearted you know everybody has to make their own decision but what i found is if there's a, a time when somebody's doing something that's not of the lord just gently remind them as they're going into an endeavor if you're talking with them you know the bible says this don't, don't try to argue with them on your own footing. Just give them God's wisdom. We've talked already about the, the power and the truth of the word from God. But in some way, try to steer them back on path. They have to make their choice. It's their decision on where they go. Just try to give them good counsel. Try to be a, at least a speed bump to slow them down and make them think about what they're doing. The fifth principle, be others-centered. Be others-centered. Esteem others above yourself. 
we don't have a better example of that than Christ himself. As we take the name of, of a Christian, as Christians, followers of Christ, little Christians or little Christs, the Bible would translate it, then we need to put others first. Six, keep Christ at the center of your life. Recognize his work in your life and praise him for all that he does. And as we said before, focus on Christ. Don't focus on the world. Avoid the things of the world. Put all that filthiness aside, the scriptures tell us. So we can be focused on him. And then praise him. Recognize what God's doing in your life, both in your small family, in your large family, and in the unbelieving world. I've probably shaken more people with the, in the unbelieving world with simply sharing what God's done in my life than anywhere else. When people ask, you know, how'd you do that? Or why'd you do that? Why'd you come to work here? You know, why, why did you, just whatever situation, how, how, why'd you handle that situation this way? I've been, you know, why didn't you even get mad? You just smiled through the whole thing. You know what? That's Christ. God taught me to do that. I'm not the same as I was 15 years ago. Thank God. I would have handled it differently. I can assure you. Just that little testimony will shake people. You know, when I took the new job that I took less than a year ago, I went in on the first day, and the, the plant manager looked at me, so I was going to be sharing a desk with him and another guy, and he, he said, um, are you a religious man? And I said, not by my definition, or I'm not really a religious man, but you would consider me a religious man. I'm a Christian. I follow the Lord. I believe in the Bible. He said, well, darn, I'm going to have to go outside to cuss. And I said, you know what? I said, that's between you and him. I said, don't worry about offending me. I said, it's his name you're using inappropriately, not mine. If you use mine wrong, I'll address that. But he didn't know what to say. It left him speechless. And to this day, you know, when I say something that God's doing in my life or I share what I'm, I'm doing in this world to serve the church, he listens. And there's another guy in the office, too, that cusses far more than a plant manager does. He can get at least one word in every sentence on a good day. You know, they, they listen. When I talk about things that are happening, they're, they're paying attention. You know, share what God's doing in your life. Give him the credit. Let other people see where that credit goes. God will use that. And the seventh principle here, search out opportunities to represent Christ. Keep your distance from forms of temptation. Keep your distance from the forms of temptation. Don't allow yourself to, to play with those toys of the world, so to speak. You don't want to fall to those. And third, the world. Referring to the, the unbelievers or those that don't have a relationship with Christ. You know, as we think of the world around us, we, we're quick to want to judge others. It's those heathens, those unbelievers, those people that won't recognize the Lord. You know, I've read a lot of stuff over the last few weeks, of even in studying for this, of people that just really condemn uh, those that follow Christ for being ignorant and foolish, believing in fairy tales and all kinds of statements. As I read 1 Timothy 1, starting in verse 12, I was convicted of the way I think of the world. It says, And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me, this being Paul, because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. And does that change the way you view the unbelieving world when you remember that at one time you were one of those? 
you know, sometimes we can kind of play the hypocrite and we forget that we were in those shoes. We, we expect something out of the unbelieving world that only the believers in Christ have the power to do, that only we've been taught, only we've accepted. Paul tells us that his conduct before his encounter with Christ was based on ignorance and unbelief. Ignorance and unbelief. So was I earlier in my life. So was each one of us at some point in time. We didn't know. Paul speaks of grace, faith, love, mercy, and long-suffering in those verses that God extended towards him while he was still an unbeliever. Those are all characteristics of God. They're also the same characteristics as Christians. The Bible encourages us to portray to others, to extend toward others. See, the, the unbelievers in this world don't know. They don't know what they don't know. The enemy has placed those scales over their eyes that they can't see, just like Paul. They're unable to see the truth of God. They're unable to see the word. They're unable to receive it into their hearts. They don't have the Holy Spirit there to speak to them and to translate for them as we have in our lives. They don't have the true teacher. So it's a very important concept in representing Christ to a fallen world is to represent God's truth to them. We're the only representation of Christ they're going to see. The world isn't offering it. The enemy isn't offering it. We're what's left. That's our endeavor. Share his truth every chance you get. Let your conduct represent Christ through all of those actions. Again, grace, faith, love, mercy, and long-suffering. Because we were each in Paul's shoes. He said, I obtained mercy that in me first Christ Jesus might show all long-suffering. If, if we can say that, can we put our name in there? Can we make that statement? That in me first, Jesus Christ showed all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe in him for everlasting life. That should be our goal once we recognize that we were in those shoes, that through me, through each of us, others would see Christ also and come to believe on him. And when you share your beliefs about topics with those unbelievers, support it with a biblical truth. You don't even have to say, this came out of the Bible, here's a chapter, here's a verse. Just as you're having conversations and, and you're sharing your beliefs about something, we do it all the time. You know, as humans, we sit and go, I believe this, well, I believe this. Just back it up with Scripture. Paraphrase, it's fine. You're, not, you're going to lose them if you go into the Greek and Hebrew, so don't worry about that. I get lost in the Greek and Hebrew. I have to look it up and translate it. God will speak through you. He'll bring the Scriptures to your mind. Just support it with God's truth and let God do the rest. You know, when questioned about eating with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus responded, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You know, Jesus went out of his way to spend time with the sinners. He came to the right place on earth, didn't he? There was a plenty, certainly an abundance of them. And if you've dedicated your life to the Lord, if you've asked him to use you, you're in a world full of people that need to hear him, that need to meet him, that need to hear his truth. Look for the opportunities to become a, a spiritual doctor, so to speak. Let Christ be represented through you. Of course, I, I caution you to keep your purpose in mind. You know, don't, don't allow yourself to enter into sin that you may lead others out. That's, that's not what this is encouraging you to do, but to be a light, to be separate, to be set aside. Verse 26, If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. It's a fairly stern warning that James gives us. You see, many people place themselves up on a pedestal and bask in their own religiousness. can be proud of a degree or 
number of years they've been teaching or how well they know the law. You think Pharisees here, right? That was their, their pride and joy was how well they knew the law, what family they came from. You know, they were great religious models. All you had to do was ask one. They'd tell you how good they were. You didn't have to question. However, they contrasted Jesus. They didn't look the same as Jesus. They weren't beneficial in pulling others up. They were only beneficial in pushing others down to lift themselves up. But you see, Jesus sought to bring himself to a place of low esteem. You know, as he was born to the earth as a child, he came of no reputation, no money, wasn't born to kings and rulers. He was born to a lowly farmer or a, a peasant family, basically a poor family. Placed himself in a low position that he might lead others up. He, he became a, a servant to each one of us, to all those around him, that he may push others up, not pull them up. You know, live your life according to the model that Jesus gave us, not the Pharisees. Live your life as a servant leader, looking for ways to help that other person putting others first. We'll close with verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. To be an example of Christ in the world, we have to refuse to conform to the world, first of all. These two go hand in hand. As we reach out to others, as we we seek to lift others up, we put others first. It's not what this world teaches you. It's the opposite of what this world teaches you. But to, to reach out to orphans and widows, orphans and widows, I, you know, you ask yourself, why did James pick those two groups? There's lots of groups out there that need help. This is the example he gave us. Why? I believe it's because these are two groups that have nothing to offer in return and probably never will. No matter how much you do for orphans and widows, they have nothing to pay you back. If you're reaching out to those types of people, then you know your actions are pure, of pure motivation. You know it's the Lord working in you when you're trying to help those that can't help themselves and no opportunity for rewarding it yourself on this earth. You know, look for those that can't help themselves. Jesus counseled on this in numerous cases. Christ is radically different from this world. He's nothing like this world. He, he starkly contrasts what's taught of this world. That's why the world hates him. That's why the world can't stand him, and you'll see it come against him every opportunity it gets. That should serve as a caution to us to not look like this world, to to not be conformed to it. Keep oneself unspotted from the world. We're to be set apart. As I said before, that God has already began his redemptive work in us. He's set us apart. He's made us different. We've been redeemed out of this world, and one day it'll be redeemed also. Let your heart produce works. Let what God's put into your heart produce works in your life. Look for cases. Look for situations in your family, within the church, within God's believers, and to the unbelievers of the world, where you may apply the teaching that God's given you. It may affect this world. Be a light on a hill as God's created us to be. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together this morning. Lord, thank you for your word here, Lord, just your encouragement that, Lord, as you have reached forth to make us the first fruits. Lord, you desire that that we produce fruit of like kind. Lord, that we be a representation of you to the remainder of this world. Lord, to encourage one another and, and alike to those that don't know you, that they may seek you through what they see in our lives, Lord. Lord, may our 
works, the activities in our lives, the things that we put our efforts and our resources to, may they reflect you. May they serve to advance your church, Lord, to grow your kingdom, to affect eternity. Lord, we just pray that you'll come into our hearts, Lord. Draw us closer to you. Show us those opportunities that you've placed before us. Help us not to miss them. Lord, help us not to to shy away for what the world may think. Lord, help us to recognize the opposition in this world for what it is that comes against us. It's just a distraction, Lord, to to derail your plan, Lord, to distract from your plan. That, Lord, may we stand out as the examples you created us to be. May we stand out as you stood out in this world, Lord, as a stark contrast to the lies of the enemy. Lord, may we leave here closer to you than when we came in. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.